uh, verse 14. So you turn there, I'll tell you a story. It's a story from one of my professors, um, one of my counseling professors, uh, Dr. Ed Welch. He tells the story about a friend of his. His friend was open to hearing about Jesus, uh, but he had lots of questions. Maybe we have people like that in our lives. Uh, Dr. Welch's friend um, had one question that was particularly burning for him. His friend's father was a very good man. And so this friend just wondered, how could his father be the best person he knew, and yet he did not clearly follow Christ? So how could his father be separated from Christ for eternity, and yet be the best man that he knows? It's a good question. Well, Dr. Welch's friends, his, his mother died, the friend's mother. And they had a small funeral and a short service at their home. And after it was done, uh, his friend's father took them on a tour of their house. And he brought them to one room. It was a good-sized bedroom. And it was floor-to-ceiling of 8 by 10 pictures. And the pictures were of this friend's father doing good deeds. It was pictures of him shaking hands with the mayor, shaking hands with the senator, shaking hands with a president. It was pictures of him receiving various awards. Here they were on this tour, looking at these pictures, very impressive. But what did these pictures represent, Dr. Welch thought? It represented a person who wants to see himself as a good person, as a good man. How do you ascend independently of God? Well, you do it by amassing good works. So Dr. Welch realized this room was a hall of idolatry. Each picture represented what this man trusted in. Each picture was a way for this man to show his fame and his greatness to the world. Dr. Welch and his friend recognized the emptiness that this room represented. And that afternoon, Dr. Welch's friend, who previously had questions about Christ, gave his heart to Christ. I love that story. And you can use that story to open up lots of different kinds of sermons. But for our passage today, it deals with a man that we should laud, that we should praise for his generosity. This is a man who could have a similar room. A similar room filled with those 8 by 10 pictures of all of his good deeds. But Nehemiah is different from the father of Dr. Welch's story. He reminds us that generosity misses the mark if it doesn't come from the right heart. More than that, our passage from Nehemiah today reminds us that before we reflect generosity, we must receive generosity. Before we reflect generosity, we must receive generosity. So you follow along with me as I read God's word from Nehemiah 5, verses 14 to 19. I encourage you to look at this in your Bible and have this Bible open throughout our time or else you will be lost. Uh, And that's kind of a parable for all of life too. So Nehemiah 5, verses 14 and 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver, 
Each their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. This is God's word. If God's people will be saved, if God's people will be delivered or protected, it will take the selfless generosity of a leader. Someone who puts the people's welfare ahead of his own. God provided such a leader in Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is a shadow of the ultimate generous leader, Jesus Christ. We'll work through this passage, Nehemiah 5, 14 and 19, in three stages. First, Nehemiah's generosity. Second, Nehemiah's peculiarity. And third, Nehemiah's heart. So first stage, Nehemiah's generosity. Let's examine maybe three kinds of 8 by 10 pictures that could have hung up on Nehemiah's wall. The first kind of picture was that Nehemiah passed up what was rightfully his. He passed up what was rightfully his. This was one of his good deeds, quote unquote. Nehemiah, throughout this passage, stresses that he passed on this food allowance that he could have reasonably received. So we look at this passage a little more closely. Verse 14. It's the first time the book tells us that Nehemiah was the governor of the land of Judah. Now, this position of governor may not have come with the prestige of a monarch, but apparently it did come with a decent benefits package. You see, even in a land of impoverished people, governors held vast courts and big banquets. You just look at verses 17 to 18, how much Nehemiah and his crew ate every day. They lived a lavish lifestyle. But the funding for this lavish lifestyle would have come from, guess where? Taxes. You know, someone told me recently that it was great that the city where I live uh, takes care of our trash and recycling for free. So, oh, no, 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 no. This is a common misunderstanding. You don't understand. It's not free. Just like the things at the hotel aren't free. It's included in the price. It's included in your taxes. And so, like, the, Nehemiah's lifestyle would have been subsidized by the poor people who lived in Jerusalem. But... Nehemiah passed up what was rightfully his. He didn't require the people to pay him what he could have reasonably demanded. Reasonably. I say that reasonably because no one would have been outraged if Nehemiah did this. This food allowance was an established, accepted practice. No one would have batted an eye. You know, Nehemiah could have thought, hey, you know, the only reason Jerusalem is starting to recover is because of me. This project would have never gotten started if I hadn't spoken to the king. You know, I deserve just a little something. Or maybe we could imagine Nehemiah could have started off his time as governor in this very selfless manner. But then after a couple of years, he starts to slip just a little bit. Starts to take a little bit more off the top and slowly justifies taking more and more. 
That's not what happened either. The passage says, Nehemiah passed on what was rightfully his for 12 years. For 12 years. That's one of the kinds of 8 by 10 pictures that could have hung up on Nehemiah's wall. But Nehemiah was generous also in that he lightened people's loads. He lightened people's loads. We can connect what's come before Nehemiah with what's happening here. Chapter 4, verse 10 says, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah knew what the people were going through. Nehemiah was in touch with the reality that the people faced. He did not remove himself from the poor people of Jerusalem. As we've seen repeatedly, Nehemiah worked among them. He inspected the damage of the walls himself. He worked on the walls himself. He stood alongside the other people preparing to defend the wall himself. He witnessed the people's needs. He witnessed the people's weaknesses. He witnessed the people's burdens firsthand his own eyes. He saw that they were about to collapse. They're at their breaking point. So the last thing he wanted to do was put more on them. He wanted to take something off. Nehemiah responded to people who were about to collapse with compassion. He did what he could not to push them over the edge. He did what he could to lighten their load. Nehemiah was generous Shows up in a couple different ways. Nehemiah was generous often by taking that load on himself. The third way he was generous was that Nehemiah served at a cost to himself. He served at a cost to himself. You look at verse 16. He says, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. You see, Nehemiah could have done his first two acts of generosity largely from his office. Could have been a desk job. But for this last one, he had to step out of the office. He had to roll up his sleeves. He had to go to work. And notice here, this work wasn't just for show either. This work wasn't just a photo opportunity that Nehemiah could post on social media. Nehemiah didn't just show up in a suit, throw on a hard hat, and then proclaim to everybody how much work all of they were doing. No. Nehemiah says he persevered at the work. He showed up more than once. And Nehemiah could have spent his time making himself richer. Instead, he spent his time serving the people he governed. As Matthew Henry puts it, Nehemiah would rather lessen his own estate than ruin the people's estate. Now we see Nehemiah's generosity. We just reflect, you know, what should we take away from this? And I wonder what most sermon series from Nehemiah will be like. I don't know if you've been in a church where they've preached Nehemiah before. A lot of sermon series from Nehemiah will be just as a preface to a large building campaign. You know, it's uh, everybody contributed in Jerusalem to build, rebuild the broken down wall so everybody in the church can contribute to a new building project. You know, I guess we got some new carpet, but we missed out on the big opportunity. Let me think, what should we take away from this point in Nehemiah's book, just his example. A lot of sermon series through Nehemiah would just kind of glean leadership principles. Seven principles of effective leadership from the book of Nehemiah. And you know, I guess that's not entirely illegitimate. And even here, 
We should emulate Nehemiah's considerate, compassionate, selfless leadership. And we'll reflect on that in a moment. But I want us to be careful. We have to be careful not to place ourselves at the center of this story. You know, everybody thinks that they're Nehemiah. When in reality, we're more like the people in Jerusalem. We try to stress that point throughout this book. We can misunderstand, even unintentionally, that the Bible isn't first about us. It's first about God. We can misunderstand that Christianity is not first about what we do for ourselves. It's about what God has done for us. So for Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 and 19, we must understand that we need generosity before we can reflect that generosity. I mean, friends, can't you see how Nehemiah points to Jesus? Jesus did not take advantage of what rightfully belonged to him. This was more than the food allowance of a middle manager. This was the eternal glory of the second person of the Trinity. From Philippians chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus stepped off his throne and dwelt among us. He knew our sin. He knew our weakness. He knew our burdens firsthand, just like Nehemiah. He knew we could not carry the weight of our sin. He knew we will collapse under the load of trying to earn our way to God. So he took the weight, he took the burden upon himself. And he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The way we are not crushed is because Jesus was crushed in our place. See, like Nehemiah, this generous leader, Jesus came not to enrich himself, but to make others rich at a great cost to himself. Not to be served, but to serve and lay down his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It is rich toward God, not just rich in material possessions. So questions in light of this. Are you, trying, are you too busy trying to show God how good and generous you are? Or have you realized how bad and poor you are? Do you show off how much you have done? Or do you know how much you need what Christ has done for you? Receive the generosity of Jesus that we don't deserve, but that he so graciously gives. That's the first stage. And we have to wonder, why Nehemiah wrote this entire section? Why write this autobiography? Why leave a record of your leadership and governing style? I mean, was Nehemiah trying to gloat about how good of a guy he was? Was this Nehemiah's attempt to write a best-selling memoir? I mean, I can imagine how he would pitch it. You know, here's the never-before-told story about what happened behind closed doors in the fraught days when the wall was broken down. Ah, I think you see throughout this section, Nehemiah drops little hints that leaders do not automatically use their authority well. In fact, in a fallen world, sort of our default mode is to abuse our authority, not to steward it. 
So details about Nehemiah's generosity and, and how he approached leadership. Hopefully, it would spur on the leaders who came after him to do the same thing. Because God's people will continue to need generous leadership. But generous leadership is a rare commodity and a very greedy world. And so we see in this second stage, Nehemiah's peculiarity. That is how Nehemiah stood out from the world around him. And he stood out, I think, in at least two ways. Nehemiah stood out first because he didn't act like a typical governor. He didn't act like a typical governor. You go back to verse 15. He says, The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily ration uh, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so. But I did not do so. Not a typical governor. You know, sometimes the reasons we do things is because we've always done them that way. Other times, the reasons we do things is because everybody else is doing it that way. That works really well when you get pulled over. (laughs) If there is a verse in the Bible that challenges that logic, it's this one. The former governors of Judah follow the pattern of human authority that is cruel, not compassionate. This pattern that is cruel, not compassionate. We see that pattern throughout Scripture, don't we? We see it in the book of Exodus. When Moses first pleaded to Pharaoh to release the enslaved Israelites, what did Pharaoh do? He made them work harder. He made their burdens heavier. We read another example from the book of 2 Kings, or 1 Kings, rather. When Rehoboam inherited the kingdom of his successful father, Solomon. When he inherited this kingdom, the people were worn out. They spent years working on this original temple that was a massive project. They were tired. And so the older, wiser men of Israel advised Rehoboam, Solomon's son, you know, give the people a break. But to prove his strength, Rehoboam rejected their advice and doubled down on placing burdens on the people. We see this pattern of cruel, not compassionate leadership throughout Scripture. We see it in Jesus' day. What did Jesus say of the scribes and the Pharisees? Matthew 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This section of Nehemiah reminds us of how easily we can abuse authority. But it also reminds us of how refreshing it is when we use our authority as God intended. For as many of us who have been damaged, unfortunately, by cruel bosses or cruel parents or, God forbid, even cruel pastors, I pray that God can redeem and bless us with considerate bosses, considerate parents, and considerate pastors. God intends us to use our authority with compassion. He intends for us to know the weaknesses of the people we serve and lead. He intends for us to help the people grow by knowing what they can handle and by knowing what they can't handle. You see, this compassionate and considerate authority will stand out in a cruel world. You see, Nehemiah was not like his predecessors. And his words sound a lot like what Jesus said to his disciples, don't they? Matthew chapter 20. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Typical strong leadership makes the people lay down themselves for the benefit of the leader. True leadership is when the leader lays down himself for the benefit of the people. This is Nehemiah's leadership, and ultimately this is Jesus' leadership. And we want to follow this example, this mindset. If we are interested only in ourselves, we will place burdens on people that they cannot bear. This is a word for us as bosses, as parents, as pastors, as an entire church. I just wonder maybe one example of it. One example of how we don't place burdens on people that are too heavy for them to bear. An example comes from scripture. Acts chapter 15. You might remember this. This is the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council, the apostles were getting together and they were trying to decide how do we bring in Gentiles to the church? These were non-Jewish people. The church was mainly composed of people from a Jewish background. So how do we bring them into the community? What do they have to do? Do they have to follow all the certain laws in order for them to belong? Or do they just have to believe in Jesus? And they decided uh, in Acts 15, verses 10 to 11, it says this. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. So here's rubber meets the road. If we were interested in making ourselves look good, we would tell others who are trying to come into the church that they are only welcome here when they make themselves look good. We say instead, you come mess and all, just as you are, and you take that to Jesus. You don't try to handle it yourself. You don't place yourself, you don't, we don't want to put burdens on you that you cannot bear that only Jesus can. You say, take that mess to Jesus and he will clean you. You do not clean yourself. This rubber hits the road. So Nehemiah was peculiar. He stood out. He stood out in another way. He wasn't a typical governor. And he wasn't a typical rich person either. Nehemiah stood out and make no mistake, Nehemiah was rich. He had huge banquets every day. In fact, you do do some math. I need a calculator for this, but I did it. If you totaled how many oxen and sheep Nehemiah would have consumed over the course of his 12-year term as governor, it would have been 4,380 oxen and 26,280 sheep. That's a lot. But even with this lavish lifestyle, Nehemiah stood out. Nehemiah stood out because he didn't get richer by making poor people poorer. He didn't subsidize his lifestyle off the backs of poor people. Verse 18 indicates that he paid for these daily banquets out of his own pocket. And so here again, Nehemiah stands against the pattern of the rich taking advantage of the poor. And God condemns this pattern over and over again in Scripture, just as he did earlier in Nehemiah chapter 5 and just as many other places in the Bible. And unfortunately, this pattern of the rich taking advantage of the poor, it continues today, doesn't it? And it's not just as corporate CEOs stuff their pockets. It also continues today, unfortunately. 
among those who proclaim to be Christians, doesn't it? In his book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, Costi Hinn, who is Benny Hinn's nephew, writes how he witnessed the prosperity gospel impoverish the people it promised to prosper. His uncle Benny can pack crowds in poor countries with the promise of healing, health, and money. But Costi says that the prosperity gospel exploits the poor and ruins the lives of some of the world's most vulnerable people. Nehemiah stood out as a rich person because he didn't take advantage of the poor. And neither did he distance himself from the poor. He didn't let his lifestyle domesticate him. He still knew what it meant to work hard. You see, he persevered at the work. He showed up every day. Nehemiah didn't let the elite circles he belonged to give him an elitist attitude. You see, Nehemiah may have been rich, but he hung out in poor neighborhoods and served alongside poor people. And so it was with Jesus. Jesus amazed the people that a teacher like him would dine with tax collectors and sinners and even do a slave's task, like washing people's feet. Nehemiah stood out as a rich person because he didn't hoard his money. His goal was not to amass for himself. You see, he didn't acquire any more land for himself. Even his banquets weren't all for him. They were for other people. Nehemiah was as generous as he was wealthy. And so Nehemiah's example reminds us that it's not a sin to have money. It's not. Guys throughout scripture, you think of Abraham, think of Joseph of Arimathea, think of Barnabas. All these guys had money. It's not a sin to have money. We've said it before here. It's a sin for money to have you. It's a sin for money to have you. Jesus said that you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Nehemiah shows that we don't have to feel guilty for enjoying and giving thanks for material blessings. But we should take care that material blessings don't distance us from God and don't distance us from people in Nehemiah lived out the passage of scripture we read earlier from 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Friends, if you found what is truly life, it's not in material goods. So we've seen Nehemiah's actions, his generosity. We've seen how Nehemiah stands out from the world, how he was peculiar. But where did it all come from? How did Nehemiah, why did Nehemiah live like he did? You know, Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what we long for, what we love the most, will desire, will will direct how we live. What's in us will steer how we live. So this third stage, let's look at Nehemiah's heart. Where did all this come from? There are two motivational statements in this section. Two times that Nehemiah says why he did what he did. The first comes in verse 15. 
Nehemiah says he didn't act like the former governors and extort the already poor people because of the fear of God. This motive and desire controlled his heart and controlled his life. This has to be the first motive in any one of us too. Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Nehemiah knows that all of life is lived before the face of God. And all of life should be lived in praise and honor to God. Now, some take issue with this starting motivation. Some take issue with the first motive of our heart being love for God. Famous lyrics you might remember. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. John Lennon assumed that if you get rid of God and religion and that all we have is just this life, then that would mean everybody would work together to make this life as best as we could make it. And we hear people all the time, don't we, say that you don't need God to live a moral life. But without this starting point, without God, what is morality? What is right and wrong? other than what the larger culture agrees upon? And can't what the culture agrees on what is right and wrong change based on who's in power? More than this, without this starting point, without God, why should you be moral? Why should you care about what's right and wrong? I mean, without God, we're here by accident, aren't we? We're just sacks of meat with chemicals firing off within us. And if that's the case, then why should you treat other people any differently from how you would treat an inanimate object like a rock? Without God, really, any motivation to do good ultimately comes down to self-interest. You do good in hopes that others would do good to you. But when you do good only out of self-interest, you've got to ask, is that genuinely good? Or is that just just a twisted form of selfishness? If the reason we do things isn't first because we love God, then we will have selfish hearts. Just no other way to put it. That's why Romans 14 verse 23 says that whatever is not from faith is sin. If you don't have this motive at the first place in your heart, you will do everything out of a sinful motivation, a selfish motivation. We talked about this at the beginning of our time, didn't we? This story. We can do even good moral actions as an attempt to establish our independence from God. So think of Nehemiah. Nehemiah could have been generous out of self-interest. Nehemiah could have been generous as a way to garner applause, accolades, attention. Nehemiah could have been generous so that people wouldn't talk about how greedy or about how much of a phony he was. Nehemiah could have been generous in order to put the people in his debt. Nehemiah could have been generous only only to look out for himself. But Nehemiah was freed from self-interest because he had something better. Nehemiah has the love, approval, and favor all of us crave for. We make endless attempts to satisfy this longing. We search for it in our careers, in our love life, and our popularity. But this is love, approval, and favor we cannot find from anyone besides God. And this freed Nehemiah to no longer be concerned about establishing his own name, but exalting God's name. 
He acted out of the fear and love for God. And this led him to the second motive in verse 18, why he did what he did. He didn't demand the food allowance of the governors because, he says, the service was too heavy on the people. Love for God, love for people. This was Nehemiah's heart. So where do we show our love for God? It's repeated throughout Scripture. We show our love of God and love for those made in God's image. Nehemiah understands the heart of God that he has for his people. We look back to his prayer in chapter 1. Nehemiah knows that God loves his people, that God has redeemed his people, that God keeps his promises he makes to his people. And so Nehemiah knows that to worship God is to reflect the heart of God. And God has a generous heart to protect weak and vulnerable people. And I think this explains Nehemiah's prayer in verse 19 also. It's clear that Nehemiah doesn't care about his own fame. He cares about the welfare of God's people. He knows that his work to help God's people can be undone. So he prays that God would establish it. Here is this generous heart that flows from a heart that loves God and loves people. And friends, this same generous heart can be in you and each one of us here. But we got to be clear. You got to remember, you can't manufacture this heart. You even can't guilt yourself into having this heart. Although Sarah McLaughlin's dog commercials do a really good job of coming close. Our hearts overflow with grace and generosity when we have received grace and generosity. What does the Bible say? We love because he first loved us. Jesus said that those who know they have been forgiven much, love much. So here's a question, friend. Are you amazed? Are you amazed by how much God has forgiven you? Are you amazed by that? Do you think about that every day? Because the, mo- the people who most selflessly meet other people's needs are those who know how much God has provided to meet their need. This is what happened for Jean Valjean, the hardened prisoner from Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. You may know the story. Valjean attempts to reintegrate into society after a long stint in prison. But people reject him at every turn. Valjean finally turned to the local bishop for help, and he found a place to stay. But he also happened upon a precious piece of silver, and Valjean stole it. But the next day, the police caught him, and they took Valjean back to the church. To his shock, Valjean hears the bishop say that the silver was not stolen, but that he gave it to Valjean as a gift. With his fate in his hands, the bishop gave Valjean grace. He was generous. Valjean says in the book, to touch my soul and teach me love, he treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claims for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate the world, this world that always hated me. Stories much longer than this, but it was grace, forgiveness, generosity that transformed Valjean to be gracious and generous himself. 
And even the priests understood that the ultimate generosity to Valjean was the passion and blood of Christ. You see, Jesus is the selfless one who meets our need at the cost of his own life. So let's receive the generosity of Christ and let's reflect his generosity together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you who are rich, for our sake, became poor so that through your poverty we might be rich toward you. Teach us, Lord, what our need is before you. Don't let us waste our time and trying to show off to you how good we've been. No, show us the truth about ourselves, about how much we need you. Every day, would you remind us of how much you have forgiven us and doing this so that we would forgive and be generous to others. Please work in us for your glory in that way. In Jesus' name we pray.